Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Yes, I have a cold. It's okay. I'm still here. Today on the podcast, we're talking about what to do when you don't know what to do. Kevin Bogle is our teacher from a talk recorded at our weekly Dharma Gathering a couple of weeks ago. You know, I've been experiencing a lot of not doing much this particular weekend as I've been laying in bed. I did buy a new mattress, so that's nice. But laying in bed, uh, pumping myself full of vitamin C, sometimes you just got to not do a lot when you're sick or when other types of obstacles arise in front of you? What do you do when the normal strategies don't seem to work for you? What to do when the normal uh, rules of engagement um, don't yield the results that you uh, typically expect? How does meditation help? Well, that is the topic of today's talk by Kevin Bogle. I'm going to take some DayQuil and enjoy the talk. Visit our website, mi.chambala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats, Uh, Our upcoming Meditation Introductory Weekend, which is called Chambala Training Weekend 1, is happening the weekend of May 4th, being led by David Perrin, another regular contributor to the podcast. You can uh, sign up or read more about it by clicking the link on the homepage, nmy.chambala.org. Okay, here's Kevin Bogle. So I wanted to talk tonight about what do we do when we don't know what to do? What do we do when we're swimming along in the stream of our life, going with the flow and everything is smooth and cool and feels good and obstacles, we could dart around them like a fish darting around a rock in a stream. And then all of a sudden we get to a dam and the water stops. And it doesn't seem like there's any way past. Um, Our usual way of being in the world doesn't work. This could be from small things like a check bouncing. Do people even write checks anymore? (laughs) Looking at our bank account and finding out we have less money than we thought. That happens to me often. Um, or, Or finding out about something that's in our relationship that we didn't know about. Or finding out that our job situation might change. You know, the scale could range from small to big, but these kinds of situations where we just freeze don't know what to do, um, don't know how to react. And, you know, common wisdom, if you look for advice online or ask, ask people who give advice what to do, it's like, do research, find a mentor, um, make a decision, any decision, it'll be fine. You know, it's really geared towards action, um, towards just doing something and the right thing will happen. And I think what we have access to through meditation and through the Dharma is, is another way of kind of reacting when we don't know what to do. Um, I wanted to start by reading a quote from uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, the poet, in his letters to a young poet, so giving advice um, to a younger poet. And I think it really kind of gets to the heart of how we work with uncertainty um, in our lives. He says, you are so young, 
so much before all beginning, and I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart, and to try to love the questions themselves, as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far into the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. I feel that the simplicity and profundity of this, live the question and perhaps live your way into the answer, is something that we train in on the cushion. We train in in meditation and in our study of the Buddha Dharma. Uh, we train in being comfortable with uncertainty, to quote another um, famous person from this lineage, Pema Chodron. I think the, the idea that I come to around what to do when we don't know what to do um, from this framework, because sometimes we do have to do something, right? We can't just be walking around in the question 24 hours a day, um, is the idea of taking refuge. Uh, traditionally, when one becomes a Buddhist, uh, one takes refuge in the Triple Jewel, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I think that whether we consider ourselves Buddhists or just Buddha curious, we could look at this idea of refuge as, a, as kind of a keystone to how we might react when we don't know what to do. Uh, Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, the younger gentleman to my left, says that every day when we wake up, we tacitly take refuge in something that we think will offer us security and protection. It might be money, in having things, in winning, in avoiding loss. There's nothing inherently wrong with external pleasures. But when we believe that our happiness depends on them, we're engaging in samsara a Sanskrit word describing a circle and endless process that results in pain, suffering, and delusionment. We work hard for what we think we want, and when we get it, we don't feel the happiness that we expected. So I think there's a clue there for what not to do when we don't know what to do. Don't do the things that'll lead to pain, disillusionment, and more suffering. And for me, for a long time, that's exactly what I did when I was confronted with life and difficult situations, I would just, I need to do something. I need to buy something. I need to maybe go on a vacation or maybe if I move cross country, that'll fix the situation for me. I'll just get drunk tonight and then tomorrow everything will look much better. And I think that's what he's talking about is taking refuge in external circumstances, looking for something outside of us to to come in and fix it, to come in and do it for us. So when we're looking at the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, we're actually not looking at anything outside of us at all. We're looking at examples of how we could be. We're looking at teachings that point to our own wisdom, our own way of knowing the world, our own life. And we're looking at a community that we can reach out to for support uh, when the going gets rough. So I wanted to talk about a bit about those three um, as a way of just kind of really talking about how we can look to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha when we just don't know what to do. <clears throat> so when we take refuge in the Buddha, 
it's not as if the Buddha is a savior for us, as someone who will um, answer our prayers and necessarily intervene in our lives and then clean up the mess we've made. Um, the Buddha is not our parents coming in to clean our room and kind of taking care of us in this way. Um, but the Buddha, when we take refuge in Buddha, is, is as an example of someone that we can emulate. It's an actual human being who did what we did tonight for 20 minutes for several years and really got clear about himself and his world. And we can come to that clarity too. We can practice. We can actually sit and practice shamatha meditation, practice vipassana awareness, and start to wake up like Buddha did. And you might say, well, that's, that's all well and good. He was a gentleman that lived a princely life in India and had some time and some space, and he had the Bodhi tree that he went and sat under to be enlightened. And I live in New York. Like, I've got the beeline. I don't have any such tree. <laughs> well, the Bodhi tree wasn't the Bodhi tree until the moment that the Buddha sat there and worked with himself. And, and that doubt exhibited by saying, oh, I just, I'm in New York, I can't do it. He was confronted with that doubt too, according to the story that Mara, the god of illusion, came to him and said, who do you think you are to be doing this? Don't you know that you're just you? And, and he touched the earth in a symbol, just gesturing that he was worthy. And we are all worthy, all of us are worthy to come into contact with who we are, to sit and work with our own minds. So we're simply following his example. And where this comes into play when we don't know what to do is that we, often when I get stuck, I panic. And I feel like, um, a hamster on a treadmill, just running, 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 and my heart, race gets, heart rate gets elevated. I just get very frightened and feel like I have to do something. Uh, or maybe we feel anxiety or fear or anger or any number of normal responses. So for me, taking refuge in the Buddha is remembering that like this state of mind I'm feeling when I'm frightened isn't all there is to me. And it's not all there is to the world, this situation, that I can kind of take a step out and have a bigger view, have a bigger mind. Remember that I do have uh, wisdom, inherent wakefulness, clarity. You know, I had a situation maybe five or six years ago where I was um, living in Seattle and just learned something about a relationship that I was in that was gonna end the relationship. And five minutes after I learned this, I had an acupuncture appointment. So it was like perfect timing to get out of the house and go and lay in a darkened room for a little bit. And I, my friend was the healer doing the treatment and as I was telling her about the situation, she said, okay, don't make a, don't make a decision from the mind state you're in right now. But like, think about yourself as your wisest, most true, strongest self. And maybe that person is like five months in the future from where you are now, but just go into that mindset. And that was really useful. That was really helpful to kind of remember that there was this bigger, um, this bigger view that I could step into 
that I didn't have to be the trapped person um, running on the treadmill. So we can reconnect with that even when we're feeling weak. So secondly, we can take refuge in the Dharma when we're feeling, feeling stuck or feeling like we don't know what to do. And the Dharma uh, refers to the body of teachings that make up Buddhism. Uh, and it also refers to the Dharma of our lives, the truth of our life experience, moment by moment. So what we come into contact when we're hearing teachings and we're sitting on the cushion is not some external stuff being downloaded into us that we didn't already have. Shastri Ethan Nickturn described this really well the other day, that Buddhism is just the observations that anyone would come to if they were paying attention. So really all these are, are the Dharma is, is just reminders of kind of who we really are and what life is really about when we can kind of get out of that stuckness. The teachings of the Buddha tell us that there is anxiety and there is pain and there is anxiousness and that sometimes you're gonna have a hard time. And so remembering that when we're trying to remember what to do, remembering um, maybe stories that we've heard or parables, uh, remembering that our moment by moment experience is teaching us that whether it's pleasure or pain, whether it's trauma or a piece of chocolate cake, that we have something we can learn and we have something that we can engage with and something we can practice with. And it doesn't mean we just sit back and accept the pain or sit back and accept the trauma, but rather that we can engage with it without shutting down. We don't have to take it personally. We can just, we can be present to it. So when it comes to making, making decisions, we can remember what we've learned um, maybe at the Tuesday night Dharma gathering or if we've taken any classes at the Shambhala Center or we could turn on a podcast or a guided meditation and see if kind of connecting to the teachings in that way um, helps us get out of the stuckness that we might be feeling. And then finally, and I think this is both the most difficult and most important of the three refuges is we can take refuge in the Sangha, which is kind of all of us in this room. It's the community of practitioners, of people who are also on this path of awakening, on this path of practice, on this path of taking radical self-responsibility for our own minds. So we can look to the Buddha as an example and the Dharma as the wisdom and the Sangha as a kind of group of people that that's manifesting through as our friends along the path and the people we can say, hey, I didn't quite get that. What was that about? And they're the people that we can call up when we're having a hard time. They're the people we can talk to um, before and after a talk and really connect with and, and show up for. And it's, it's also difficult to do that because people are people. You know, like we're all messy. We're all gonna make mistakes and we're all going to not be the best friends to one another and we're all going to forget birthdays and fart during meditation and otherwise like be humans and and that kind of sucks because we want to show up to this beautiful place and like everything to be perfect and and we're not we're we're normal we're regular we're people 
But I think that's actually gives me a lot of um, trust that I can show up with my messiness, that I, I'm in this seat as a teacher, but I am also a student and I sit there and I also have uh, anxiety and problems and concerns and I also freak out. And, and having refuge in the Sangha means that I can trust the container, that I can show up with all of who I am, that I don't have to be some perfect person. I can call up my friends and, and kind of work through life. So how does this look like to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha when you don't know what to do? I'm lucky that I have a really close example to share um, from about 30 hours ago, 31 hours ago. So I had been preparing a talk for this for most of a month. And this is my third time to give a Tuesday night Dharma gathering talk. And I was like, okay, I've got it. I'm going to pick a really big thorny issue and really just bring it. And so I spent like three and a half weeks researching and writing and preparing. And yesterday after lunch, I just realized like I can't give this talk. And I freaked out. <laughs> and it was terrifying. I told my friend, I was like, I want to throw up. Like I, I can't do this thing I've been wanting to do for a while and like talking about and thinking about. And it was just a combination of it just wasn't ready and I, w I wasn't ready to give it. So, you know, I kind of went into I don't know what to do mode. And I followed my intuition. I was at work and I decided, well, I can't be at work right now because I'm freaking out and I need to be in a space where I can process this. So I checked in with my boss and was like, I'm leaving. I need to take off. So I beelined it for my house. And rather than rushing to the subway, I slowed down and actually did like a walking meditation across this parking lot. And I just slowed my whole system down. I slowed my breathing down. I slowed my body down. And in doing that, I connected with my own Buddha nature, spaciousness, um, the part of me that wasn't stuck in this panic. And then as I was on the train, I texted my sister, who's an amazing ally and supporter of mine and also deals with anxiety a lot. I was like, oh my God, I'm freaking out. Can you talk to me? And she's like, I'm on lunch. Let me call you in a few minutes. So we had this conversation. And, and I told her all of the reasons I was freaking out. And she just held that like, with so much space and didn't try to fix it. And wasn't like, how can we make this talk work? And wasn't in any way trying to change my experience. She just heard for like 20 minutes on her 30 minute lunch break and just like listened. And she said, well, you know, my therapist tells me it's really important that I don't take any options off the table whenever I'm panicking. And I was like, okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> that opens up the space even further. Because rather than trying to figure out how to make this t talk work as being the only thing I can do, all of a sudden I had the choice not to give the talk at all. And so then I was home and I have a meditation area. So I sat down and I lit my candles and um, I do chants as a part of my practice. And so that kind of helped me connect to the Dharma. To this idea that um, I can be confident regardless of how shaky things are on the outside. I can connect to that confidence through practice. 
I can connect to my own wisdom. So I sat for about 30 minutes and then I took a nap and um, then I called another friend and this is a Sangha member and kind of was like, I can't give this talk and I've come to that realization. And the realization came to me not in like a decision-making tree where I was like pros and cons and this and that, but it was after I finished sitting, I just kind of knew like the truth that I can't give this talk. And it was just clear as a bell. It was just, this is the truth. And so then it was like, well, what am I going to do instead? Well, I need to prepare another talk. And what will that talk be about? And it'll be about this freak out that I've just had. And how will I frame that? I'll frame it... Um, my friend suggested, well, the three jewels, the Buddha Dharma Sangha sounds like exactly what you've done. And all of that is 100% true. Um, and it works. And it works. It works to, to tap into that mind of meditation that we come into contact with when we're coming back to the breath. Our breath is always going to be with us always, always, always until it's not and, and at that point it's too late. So we can always come back to the spaciousness of connecting to our breath and our feeling of being a human in this moment. Um, that spaciousness is always going to be there for you and when you cultivate that on the cushion that means you can connect to it in your everyday life. And, and for me that's tried and true, the thing I come back to when uh, strong emotions are ruling and fear is taking over. So I wanted to, to finish this up with um, connecting, uh, connecting um, to what my sister did and kind of talk about listening a little bit because she was such a skillful listener. And the Sakyong in his latest book, The Art of Good Conversation, um, talks about the skill of listening as something that we, we need to cultivate. And I thought she got it so right that that's something that we can actually offer to people, offer to our Sangha and to ourselves, that so we can listen to ourselves and we can listen to other people. And that allows us to create a container that we can trust to bring our messiness to, to bring our whole life situation to. So he gives a, a brief like four-step process for listening. He says that first we need to tune in to come into the present moment and drop our daydreams. We drop the story that we somehow know what the other person is about to say to us. And he says that even if this person has said this to us 15 or 20 times before, the reason they're repeating it is because we actually haven't heard them. So we can drop this kind of assumption that we know what they're going to say and just tune in to what's going on. And the second step is to focus, that we can put our full attention on their words. We can relax and allow tension to dissolve. We use the discipline we've cultivated in meditation to return to the speaker's words in the present moment. And if we feel overwhelmed by what the person's saying to us, we can check in and use our bodily sensations as a way to come back. So our feet on the floor, seat in the seat, come back to that. So we tune in and then we focus. Then he says, listening is a dynamic and quiet action. So we can provide care and accommodation. We can be warm and show interest by maybe occasionally interjecting comments 
or briefly reiterating what we're hearing. And this is how the person knows they're being heard. We can even repeat back after they've finished speaking the essence of what we've heard them say. Oh, it sounds like you were saying this and this, is that right? And that lets them know even more that we've heard and processed what they've told us. He also talks about the importance of being aware of the ways that we might shut down when someone's talking with us. That we might be judging what they're saying, saying it's right or wrong or true or false as they talk to us. Uh, another trap we might file, fall into is to compare our experience with theirs and kind of say, oh, that hasn't happened to me. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, so comparing what someone else is saying to see if it matches our own experience. Uh, the third trap is that we, we make a choice while we're listening, that maybe we like what they're saying or we don't like what they're saying, or maybe we like the person altogether or we dislike them, that we make some kind of decision while we listen. And then the final habitual pattern we might fall into is coming to a decision um, about what they're saying as they communicate with us, saying, oh, I believe that, yeah, that sounds good, or I don't believe that, coming to some kind of decision. So by practicing tuning in, focusing, and giving care and accommodation, we can actually kind of work to cultivate a sangha that we can feel trustworthy to be in and create trustworthy space for other people. Um, so I have a question in terms of um, working in an environment where um, a lot of people come up to you uh, all of the time, um, you know, coworkers, uh, customers, um, and I feel like I've gotten into this trap where I'm trying to finish people's sentences. Like I'm just trying to finish them so I can get on to the next person. And I've yeah. caught myself feeling like, oh, I'm not listening, you know, because yeah. most of the time they're like, no, no, that's not what I meant. Um, so I just need some advice when it comes to just um, a lot of people wanting you to listen to them. And it's just like there's you, sometimes I feel like I just don't have enough time to listen to everybody. And I know that's just in my head, but yeah. sometimes um, like today, it was just like a lot, you know, and, and I don't want to be rude by like trying to finish people's sentences and then obviously not being right. Like before I used to be really good at just yeah. finishing people's sentences and it was right on point. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like lately it's just like not happening yeah. and, and right. I don't, I just, I beat myself up because I feel like I'm being rude. And then um, in this exercise when I was talking and then I was listening, I found myself just like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm listening, but I don't know if that's active listening, if you feel the need to, to say mm-hmm mm -hmm. or yeah or you know what I mean? So I, I don't know. <laughs> I just caught myself saying mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, you're, you're, you're listening and you're engaging with people, but you're also at your job, right? And so you have things that are expected of you. And so it's, it's not like a casual Sunday brunch where you're, you're, you know, you, this might be a good conversation to have with colleagues to see how colleagues that you think do this really well, okay. I'm guessing they're going through similar situations, what's their approach? How do they listen? And we can have all kinds of sanghas in the world. So we could have the sangha at Shambhala, but we can also have our work sangha. 
and kind of looking to them to help you navigate that could be useful. Um, but it's tough. I've worked in like high speed restaurants and it's really hard to have a meditative mind when everything is crazy around you. And so you just kind of do often the best that you can. And for me, that's finding moments where I can have like a 30 second reconnection to my practice in the middle of the floor. So when I was bussing tables and filling water, it would be refilling the water pitcher. I would come into contact with my breath and with my body and just kind of take that 30 seconds to recharge and then go back out on the floor. And it seemed like those, those little meditation breaks actually helped me be more present rather than just looking at the next thing I had to do and won't you get out of my way. Okay. So maybe you could find something like that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Um, I really enjoyed your talk, and I'm very pleased that you were so vulnerable. It was really, um, it was a beautiful talk. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm really struggling to deal with my father at the moment, whose, um, our, our views are just completely polarized. He's very right-wing, and our communication broke down severely, uh, like a week ago or more, and he wrote me this letter, and I just, I, I can't. I'm so insulted by so much of what he says, and it's just, it, my question is, like, is there a place for non-listening? Like, mm. if you know that you <laughs> just can't, yeah. because you're so far apart, and I yeah. just, I don't know if I can distance, ever distance myself from his thinking, right. um, and I don't, I'm just done. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. hear any more of it. I don't want to see his letters that just are you know, I just... Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> that sounds really uncomfortable and almost harmful mm -hmm. um, to be kind of repeatedly confronted with someone's views that you find mm -hmm. so against your own. I mean, I think that in this conversation on listening, this, these encouragements happen within a safe, safer container where boundaries are established and we know that the person we're listening to isn't subjugating us to stuff that we would rather not hear because we find it um, re-traumatizing or painful. So I think that the conversation about boundaries needs to happen first. You know, what do you allow into your space to actually practice this listening with and what needs to stay on the other side of the fence? And with family, that's really painful and difficult, and I don't want to give too much advice because there's, you know, there's only so much I could know. But maybe there are things you could find with your dad that are still topics you could connect about. And maybe you just say, we, you know, when it comes to left wing, right wing, we just don't go there anymore. And you can establish some boundaries where then listening can happen about the details of life. Maybe the weather, you know, something that, that mundane and that, um, because we're all humans having our human experience and when we can get out of the stories that disconnect us, we can come back to that being a body, being in the world, being afraid, being happy, um, 
come back to really what makes us human. And I think that's maybe some meeting ground, but I, you know, I don't know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thanks. I'm sure yeah. I'm not the only one with this experience. That's right. <laughs> um, just a little bit off of what you said. Um, I actually, people used to feel that I was a good listener and I thought I was a good listener, but I find today it's sometimes hard to listen because we've become so like, you're on that team, I'm on this team. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel like when I'm talking, people are waiting for me to say something that def defines me as either being on their team or not being on their team. And vice versa, I sometimes find myself doing that too. So probably that I avoid those sort of confrontations, you know. Um, I think this is just a very, I, I don't think there's a lot of listening going on right now. <laughs> I think it's a very difficult time to yeah. listen and, and um, it's unfortunate. It feels isolating. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can other people connect with that? Yeah. I, um, you know, I was thinking somebody earlier said about just the, the value of listening and, and just finding the words. And I feel like setting that intention that both you're going to listen, but also take out the judgment mm. may help mm. in these situations where it's like you're listening, but if you're not attaching negative or great or bad or, you know, that may help, that may quite not resolve it because sometimes okay. it's out of our way. I know in my personal life, um, I've, I've, you know, I have some friends or I may be that friend that sometimes it may not be, you know, things that I don't agree with or, or whatnot, but it sometimes it so happens where well, I was a philosophy major and I have this friend that always wants to have like really intellectual conversations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's such a value in sometimes talking about I'm looking forward to spring mm -hmm. and, <laughs> you know, and, and getting rid of, you know, without having, if, if you don't feel like it's good or bad, it's, it's just is, and we're not expecting anything right. that, that may help. And we just focus on the connection mm. or in the fact that we're speaking, mm. um, you know, because I do feel that, um, that's the best way to be compassionate, right? Like to be compassionate, not when you talk to the easy people to talk to, but you know, those that for some reason or the other, you know, have something different to say. And in my case, it's my wife. <laughs> so that's really, really close to, to yeah. like, and I'm like, well, I have to talk to my wife. <laughs> you know, we're going to make this happen. Yeah, so yeah. Um, that's what helps me personally. Um, oh. Thank you. That's all. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for mentioning that idea of there being various Sangha possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, I spend my life traveling. I don't have a home anywhere. Mm. Um, so I've always struggled with this idea of connecting with the Sangha. Mm. And I, I visit centers as much as I can, but I'm always a stranger to everyone in the room. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a nice thought that there might be other opportunities that are not necessarily within a Buddhist practice Sangha. I mean, is that kind of... Does that count? <laughs> Am I connecting with the three jewels or not? I would say from like a, a strictly refuge, taking refuge as a Buddhist, um, the Sangha of 
practitioners is kind of held as the sangha you would be taking refuge in. So it wouldn't be the sangha of people you play golf with, for example. But I think that the idea of community as being people that we can look to for support. So I'm, I'm in the recovery community. And I look to people in recovery as a sangha that I, I don't look to the Shambhala sangha as. So it's a very different group of people. Um, and they help support different needs of mine. So I think you know, we don't have to be so religious about the definition of sangha. We can actually identify our own needs and see where we can find support for that um, by entering into to right relations with other people. So is that helpful? Okay. I was just thinking that this thing is about contemplating the questions. Mm. You know, not just in yourself, but actually taking the time and the space to be with those questions, with what that person um, is experiencing, rather than trying to give the solution and the answer, which is kind of like, you know, you, you want to put something in there, you want to fix it, you want to know it, um, and just, you know, kind of waiting it out and it, yeah. being part of that, yeah. appreciating it and kind of living it with them. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's what my sister did. She didn't say, oh, this is my lunch break. I need to get him off the phone. And she didn't try to fix the situation because it made it feel, her feel uncomfortable. And I think that's often what we can rush to is we say, oh, I've got other places to be or this person's discomfort makes me feel uncomfortable so I want to make it go away as quick as I can. And so when, you, when you're able to sit with the question that the other person is experiencing like you described, and sit with your own discomfort, you know, that creates space for both of you to kind of let something arise together. It's a really wonderful observation. Thank you for your talk. You're welcome, thank you. So if there are no other burning observations or questions or complaints, um, <laughs> I think we have refined carbohydrates and sugars outside and fruits and vegetables. So thank you all so very much for coming and for your, your skillful listening tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Visit our website, nyachambala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Uh, in particular, I want to point out Shambhala Training Weekend 1, our introductory meditation weekend, is coming up the weekend of May 4th. Uh, email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org. Your questions, comments, suggestions. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night. You can hear these talks live and in person. It's a good time. Okay, time for some NyQuil. Later. <laughs>